Welcome back to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We have a collection of tales from the author James Baldwin today. The first story is called Androclus and the Lion. In Rome there was once a poor slave whose name was Androclus. His master was a cruel man, and so unkind to him that at last Androclus ran away. He hid himself in a wild wood for many days, but there was no food to be found, and he grew so weak and sick that he thought he should die. So one day he crept into a cave and lay down, and soon he was fast asleep. After a while a great noise woke him up. A lion had come into the cave and was roaring loudly. Androclus was very much afraid, for he felt sure that the beast would kill him. Soon, however, he saw that the lion was not angry, but that he limped as though his foot hurt him. Then Androclus grew so bold that he took hold of the lion's lame paw to see what was the matter. The lion stood quite still and rubbed his head against the man's shoulder. He seemed to say, I know that you will help me. Androclus lifted the paw from the ground and saw that it was a long, sharp thorn which had been hurting the lion so much. He took the end of the thorn in his fingers, then he gave a strong, quick pull, and out it came. The lion was full of joy. He jumped about like a dog and licked the hands and feet of his new friend. Androclus was not at all afraid after this, and when the night came, he and the lion lay down and slept side by side. For a long time, the lion brought food to Androclus every day, and the two became such good friends that Androclus found his new life a very happy one. One day some soldiers who were passing through the wood found Androclus in the cave. They knew who he was, and so took him back to Rome. It was the law at that time that every slave who ran away from his master should be made to fight a hungry lion. So a fierce lion was shut up for a while without food, and a time was set for the fight. When the day came, thousands of people crowded to see the sport. They went to such places at that time very much as people nowadays go to see a circus show or a game of baseball. The door opened, and poor Androclus was brought in. He was almost dead with fear, for the roars of the lion could already be heard. He looked up and saw that there was no pity in the thousands of faces around him. Then the hungry lion rushed in. With a single bound he reached the poor slave. Androclus gave a great cry, not of fear, but of gladness. It was his old friend, the lion of the cave. The people, who had expected to see the man killed by the lion, were filled with wonder. They saw Androclus put his arms around the lion's neck. They saw the lion lie down at his feet and lick them lovingly. They saw the great beast rub his head against the slave's face as though he wanted to be petted. They could not understand what it all meant. After a while they asked Androclus to tell them about it, so he stood up before them and, with his arm around the lion's neck, told how he and the beast had lived together in the cave. "'I am a man,' he said, "'but no man has ever befriended me. This poor lion alone has been kind to me, and we love each other as brothers.' The people were not so bad that they could be cruel to the poor slave now. Live and be free, they cried. Live and be free. Others cried, Let the lion go free too. Give both of them their liberty. And so Androclus was set free, and the lion was given to him for his own, and they lived together in Rome for many years. Next is the story of Bruce and the Spider by James Baldwin.
There was once a king of Scotland whose name was Robert Bruce. He had need to be both brave and wise, for the times in which he lived were wild and rude. The king of England was at war with him, and had led a great army into Scotland to drive him out of the land. Battle after battle had been fought. Six times had Bruce led his brave little army against his foes, and six times had his men been beaten and driven into fight. At last his army was scattered, and he was forced to hide himself in the woods and in lonely places among the mountains. One rainy day, Bruce lay on the ground under a rude shed, listening to the patter of the drops on the roof above him. He was tired and sick at heart, and ready to give up all hope. It seemed to him that there was no use for him to try to do anything more. As he lay thinking, he saw a spider over his head, making ready to weave her web. He watched her as she toiled slowly and with great care. Six times she tried to throw her frail thread from one beam to another, and six times it fell short. "'Poor thing,' said Bruce. "'You, too, know what it is to fail.' But the spider did not lose hope with the sixth failure. With still more care, she made ready to try for the seventh time. Bruce almost forgot his own troubles as he watched her swing herself out upon the slender line. Would she fail again? No. The thread was carried safely to the beam and fastened there. I, too, will try a seventh time, cried Bruce. He arose and called his men together. He told them of his plans and sent them out with messages of cheer to his disheartened people. Soon there was an army of brave Scotsmen around him. Another battle was fought, and the King of England was glad to go back into his own country this time. I've heard it said that after that day, no one by the name of Bruce would ever hurt a spider. The lesson which the little creature had taught the king was never forgotten. This story is called Damon and Pythias by James Baldwin. A young man whose name was Pythias had done something which the tyrant Dionysius did not like. For this offense he was dragged to prison, and a day was set when he should be put to death. His home was far away, and he wanted very much to see his father and mother and friends before he died. Only give me leave to go home and say goodbye to those whom I love, he said, and then I will come back and give up my life. The tyrant laughed at him. How can I know that you'll keep your promise? he said. You only want to cheat me and save yourself. Then a young man whose name was Damon spoke and said, King, put me in prison in place of my friend Pythias, and let him go to his own country and put his affairs in order, and to bid his friends farewell. I know that he will come back as he promised, for he is a man who has never broken his word. But if he is not here on the day which you have set, then I will die in his stead. The tyrant was surprised that anybody should make such an offer. He at last agreed to let Pythias go and gave orders that the young man Damon should be shut up in prison. Time passed, and by and by the day drew nearer which had been set for Pythias to die, and he had not come back. The tyrant ordered the jailer to keep close watch upon Damon, and not let him escape, but Damon did not try to escape. He still had faith in the truth and honor of his friend. He said, If Pythias does not come back in time, it will not be his fault. It will be because he is hindered against his will. At last the day came, and then the very hour. Damon was ready to die. His trust in his friend was as firm as ever, 
and he said that he did not grieve at having to suffer for one whom he loved so much. Then the jailer came to lead him to his death, but at the same moment Pythias stood in the door. He had been delayed by storms and shipwreck, and he had feared that he was too late. He greeted Damon kindly, and then gave himself into the hands of the jailer. He was happy because he thought that he had come in time, even though it was at the last moment. The tyrant, the tyrant king, was not so bad but that he could not see good in others. He felt that men who loved and trusted each other, as Damon and Pythias, ought not to suffer unjustly. And so he set them both free. I would give all my wealth to have one such friend, he said. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. Horatius at the Bridge by James Baldwin Once there was a war between the Roman people and the Etruscans, who lived in the towns on the other side of the Tiber River. Porzina, the king of the Etruscans, raised a great army and marched toward Rome. The city had never been in such great danger. The Romans did not have very many fighting men at that time, and they knew that they were not strong enough to meet the Etruscans in open battle, so they kept themselves inside of their walls and set guards to watch the roads. One morning the army of Porcina was seen coming over the hills from the north. There were thousands of horsemen and footmen, and they were marching straight toward the wooden bridge which spanned the river at Rome. "'What shall we do?' said the white-haired fathers who made the laws for the Roman people. "'If they once gain the bridge, we cannot hinder them from crossing. And then what hope will there be for the town?' Now among the guards at the bridge there was a brave man called Horatius. He was on the farther side of the river, and when he saw that the Etruscans were so near, he called out to the Romans who were behind him. "'Hew down the bridge with all the speed that you can,' he cried. "'I, with the two men who stand by me, will keep the foe at bay.' Then, with their shields before them and their long spears in their hands, the three brave men stood in the road and kept back the horsemen whom Porcina had sent to take the bridge. On the bridge the Romans hewed away at the beams and posts. Their axes rang, the chips flew fast, and soon it trembled and was ready to fall. "'Come back! Come back! And save your lives!' they cried to Horatius and the two who were with him. But just then Porcina's horsemen dashed toward them again. "'Run for your lives!' said Horatius to his friends. "'I will keep the road!' They turned and ran back across the bridge. They had hardly reached the other side when there was a crashing of beams and timbers. The bridge toppled over to one side and then fell with a great splash into the water. When Horatius heard the sound, he knew that the city was safe. With his face still toward Porcina's men, he moved slowly backward till he stood on the river's bank. A dart thrown by one of Porcina's soldiers put out his left eye, but he did not falter. He cast his spear at the foremost horseman, and then he turned quickly round. He saw the white porch of his own home among the trees on the other side of the stream. And there's a very old poem that reads, And he spake to the noble river that rolls by the walls of Rome. O Tiber, Father Tiber, to whom the Romans pray, a Roman's life, a Roman's arms, take thou in charge today. He leaped into the deep, swift stream. He still had his heavy armor on, and when he sank out of sight, 
no one thought that he'd ever be seen again. But he was a strong man, and the best swimmer in Rome. The next minute he rose. He was halfway across the river, and safe from the spears and darts which Porcina's soldiers hurled after him. Soon he reached the farther side, where his friends stood ready to help him. Shout after shout greeted him as he climbed about the bank. Then Porcina's men shouted also, for they'd never seen a man so brave and strong as Horatius. He had kept them out of Rome, but he had done a deed which they could not help but praise. As for the Romans, they were very grateful to Horatius for having saved their city. They called him Horatius Cocles, which meant the one-eyed Horatius, because he had lost an eye in defending the bridge. They caused a fine statue of brass to be made in his honor, and they gave him as much land as he could plow around in a day. And for hundreds of years afterwards, they sang. With weeping and with laughter, still was the story told how well Horatius kept the bridge in those brave days of old. And our last story, King John and the Abbot, by James Baldwin. There was once a king of England whose name was John. He was a bad king, for he was harsh and cruel to his people, and so long as he could have his own way, he did not care what became of other folks. He was the worst king that England ever had. Now, there was in the town of Canterbury a rich old abbot who lived in grand style in a great house called the Abbey. Every day a hundred noblemen sat down with him to dine, and fifty brave knights in fine velvet coats and gold chains waited upon him at his table. When King John heard of the way in which the abbot lived, he made up his mind to put a stop to it. So he sent for the old man to come and see him. "'How now, my good abbot?' he said. "'I hear that you keep a far better house than I. "'How dare you do such a thing? "'Don't you know that no man in the land "'ought to live better than the king? "'And I tell you that no man shall.' "'Oh, king,' said the abbot, "'I beg to say that I am spending nothing "'but what is my own. "'I hope that you will not think ill of me "'for making things pleasant for my friends "'and the brave knights who are with me. "'Think ill of you!' said the king. How can I help but think ill of you? All that there is in this broad land is mine by right, and how do you dare to put me to shame by living in grander style than I? One would think that you're trying to be king in my place. Oh, do not say so, said the abbot, for I— Not another word, cried the king. Your fault is plain, and unless you can answer me three questions, your head shall be cut off and all your riches shall be mine. I will try to answer them, O king, said the abbot. Well then, said King John, as I sit here with my crown of gold on my head, you must tell me to within a day just how long I shall live. Secondly, you must tell me how soon I shall ride around the whole world. And lastly, you shall tell me what I think. O king, said the abbot, these are deep, hard questions, and I cannot answer them just now. But if you will give me two weeks to think about them, I will do the best that I can. Two weeks you shall have, said the king. But if then you fail to answer me, you shall lose your head, and all your lands shall be mine. The abbot went away very sad and in great fear. He first rode to Oxford. Here was a great school, called a university and he wanted to see if any of the wise professors could help him, but they shook their heads and said that there was nothing about King John in any of their books. 
Then the abbot rode down to Cambridge, where there was another university. But not one of the teachers in that great school could help him. At last, sad and sorrowful, he rode toward home to bid his friends and his brave knights goodbye, for now he had not a week left to live. As the abbot was riding up the lane which led to his grand house, he met his shepherd going to the fields. "'Welcome home, good master,' cried the shepherd. "'What news do you bring us from great King John?' "'Sad, sad news,' said the abbot, and then he told him all that had happened. "'Cheer up, good master,' said the shepherd. "'Have you never yet heard that a fool may teach a wise man wit? "'I think I can help you out of your trouble.' "'You help me?' cried the abbot. "'How?' "'Well,' answered the shepherd, "'you know that everybody says that I look just like you, "'and that I have sometimes been mistaken for you. "'So lend me your servants and your horse and your gown, "'and I will go up to London and see the king. "'If nothing else can be done, "'I can at least die in your place.' "'My good shepherd,' said the abbot, "'you are very, very kind, "'and I have a mind to let you try your plan. "'But if the worst comes to the worst, "'you shall not die for me. "'I will die for myself.' "'So the shepherd got ready to go at once. "'He dressed himself with great care. "'Over his shepherd's coat he threw the abbot's long gown, "'and he borrowed the abbot's cap and golden staff. "'When all was ready,' No one in the world would have thought that he was not the great man himself. Then he mounted his horse, and with a great train of servants, set out for London. Of course, the king did not know him. "'Welcome, Sir Abbot,' he said. "'It is a good thing that you have come back. But, prompt as you are, if you fail to answer my three questions, you shall lose your head.' "'I am ready to answer them, O king,' said the shepherd. "'Indeed, indeed,' said the king, and he laughed to himself. "'Well, then, answer my first question. How long shall I live? Come, you must tell me to the very day.' "'You shall live,' said the shepherd, "'until the day that you die, and not one day longer. And you shall die when you take your last breath, and not one moment before.' The king laughed. "'You are witty, I see.' he said. But we'll let that pass, and say that your answer is right. And now tell me, how soon may I ride around the world? You must rise with the sun, said the shepherd, and you must ride with the sun until it rises again the next morning. As soon as you do that, you will find that you have ridden round the world in twenty-four hours. The king laughed again. Indeed, he said. I did not think that it could be done so soon. You are not only witty, but you are wise, and we will let this answer pass. And now comes my third and last question. What do I think? That is an easy question, said the shepherd. You think that I am the abbot of Canterbury, but to tell you the truth, I am only his poor shepherd, and I have come to beg your pardon for him and for me. And with that, he threw off his long gown. The king laughed loud and long. "'A merry fellow you are,' said he, "'and you shall be abbot of Canterbury in your master's place.' "'O king, that cannot be,' said the shepherd, "'for I can neither read nor write.' "'Very well, then,' said the king. 
I will give you something else to pay you for this merry joke. I will give you four pieces of silver every week as long as you live. And when you get home, you may tell the old abbot that you have brought him a free pardon from King John. Thanks for joining us for this collection of James Baldwin stories. Hope you enjoyed them very much. If you enjoy 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, please do send us a review, Apple listeners. We appreciate and enjoy reviews very much. And everyone, please do share our show with a friend. Thank you. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone stay safe, and we'll see you then.